Good morning. This is really high. <laughs> Just going to lower that. That's better. So we're well into our sermon series. Um, for any of you who've missed it so far, we're looking at the narrative of the Bible through creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And these key themes you'll see knitted through every story in the Bible. It shows us God's goodness and how he comes after us time and time and time again, and also our propensity to make a bit of a mess out of things as humankind. But hopefully, as we go through this sermon series, you'll discover even more about how good God is. Now, the reason we thought we'd look at the Bible and do it in this way um, is because actually, as a nation, our biblical literacy is pretty poor. And um, I was writing an essay before Christmas, and um, as I looked at the stats, I think they were taken in something like 2015 or 17, um, they revealed that about 4% of Christians read their Bible every day. Um, it goes up to about 6% read them weekly, and for Anglicans, 2% of people, Christians, read their Bible every day. <laughs> So I thought, well, you may have all of this, you know, sorted. You may be reading your Bible well, but let's just cover it anyway. Let's do the story. Let's create a hunger in us to continue to read well. And um, I'm sure that is not true statistics for this church. Hopefully not. <laughs> so anyway, my hope is that you'll grow in knowledge of the Bible and catch a hunger to read it and meditate on the words. Now, for me, a hunger was birthed in me from quite a young age. So as a family, um, there were five kids, and every morning before school, we used to have breakfast and then gather as a family in the living room. Uh, my dad would read the Bible and a bit of every day with Jesus type thing or the living word or whatever it was at that point. And then we'd each pray together and we'd have a time of worship. Um, and to be honest, I can't remember much of what we read, but what it did instill in me was that the Bible was an important book that I needed in my life every day. And so I do thank my mum and dad for that. And um, that has lasted with me. And so now I, every year I go through the whole of the Bible. I read it from cover to cover. Um, and to keep it fresh, I read different versions of the Bible. Um, so this year I'm trying the contemporary English version because I haven't read that one all the way through. Um, but I try different plans. I've done the Murray McShane, for those who are an older generation might have heard of that. Um, I've done that one a few times. But to kind of keep the Bible reading fresh, I try different versions and different ways of reading it. And uh, I've tried chronological as well. And there's loads of different ways that you can read it. As a family at the moment, we're working through the Gospel of John. I don't know whether any of you have got the YouVersion app, but this, this is great for our family because they each have devices and they can write what God is saying to them on their device, and we can all share that as a family as well. So there's some nice things about using that if you're in a family that can write. Um, I sometimes like to read a book in one sitting. Um, this just helps it make more sense. Sometimes we dip in and out of the Bible, but actually when you take a whole book and you read it in one go, trust me, you will really enjoy the experience, providing it's a positive book. <laughs> um, I've also got this Bible, which has got four different versions on one page. So it's got the New Living Translation, the NIV, um, the Message, and the New King James Version, all on one page. So you can view these all in one go, just so that you can compare um, what different versions say. So we, that sometimes helps to get a, more, a better understanding of the translation. 
Our kids like to read the manga Bible. If you haven't come across that and you have kids, I do recommend that. That's really helped. Just kind of the whole narrative um, take root. And also the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you're a parent and you haven't tried that, I do recommend that because that continually points back to Jesus. When reading the Bible, you can also use it in meditation. So I don't know whether you've heard of Lecto Divina. You probably have because we've mentioned it a few times. But that's when you take a shorter passage of the Bible and you read it. And then you reread it. And then you um, sort of reflect on it. Um, and then respond and then rest in it. But if you want to look that up, I would encourage you to. Because you can take short passages and really go on a lovely journey with Jesus as you do that. My newest discovery, however, of reading the Bible is to study it. So many of you know that I am now at college, and I'm really enjoying just going deeper in understanding what is going on, who wrote bits of the Bible, um, and sort of being explained by people who actually can interpret the Hebrew language and tell you what the original text would have meant by certain phrases, and that's brought a lot of joy to me. So, there are loads and loads of creative ways to read this book of ours. And um, my encouragement would be to you, if you haven't already read it all the way through, I would encourage you to try that. If you're struggling to understand, there's this um, app called Read Scripture, and there's loads of videos that explain what different books are about, and that's brilliant. So, maybe do it alongside something like that. So that's enough of the hard sell on reading the Bible. But let's have a look at what we're doing today. And today we are looking at redemption. Now, redemption is basically about the fact that God is with us, that he is desiring to be doing life with us, that he wants to walk with us every day. And we see this in the way he goes um, through different people in the Bible. Oh, this is a picture of me and Jesus right there. Yeah, I cut that photo out and stuck it next to him many, many years ago. <laughs> and I thought I'd share that with you this morning. You're welcome. So, <laughs> this is how we get to do life with God, side by side. We are with Jesus in life. And as I mentioned earlier, God is so good. He comes through for us time and time again. And we have this propensity to mess things up time and time again. But he redeems us out of the mess. And he does this because he wants to do life together. So if we go back to the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve, we know that there was a fall. Sorry, this was the best picture I could find where they weren't naked. <laughs> it's a bit cartoony, but I thought it was a bit early for naked pictures of people. So we've got a nice headshot. <laughs> um, Adam and Eve. And now it said that God walked with them in the cool of the day. He set up life to be doing it with them. Then we know that there was a fall where they disobeyed God and ate fruit from a tree that they were told not to. And so out of his goodness, he removes them out of Eden. And it says he moves them east of Eden. Now, part of this was that he wanted to stop them living forever because now they had discovered pain and suffering. Can you imagine what it would be like to live a life eternally, knowing pain and suffering in your life? And so out of his goodness, he removed them away from Eden and he reset them. He put clothes on them. Even though originally they didn't need clothes, now they had discovered their own nakedness. God was good and even made clothes for them. So he redeemed them. And then we see, so he sets them up in a new way of living, and then life gets pretty messy. 
And um, it ends up with some messy things happening between humans and Nephilim. And basically, through Noah, God covenants with him to save the human race. So we know that there was a flood and that Noah built an ark in obedience to what God called him to and that he rescued his family and animals and they all went on this ark and then it rained for 40 days and nights. And so they're on this ark for a very long time. When the floods went down, we know that Noah then um, got off the ark and God put a rainbow in the sky. Now, The reason he put a rainbow in the sky was to say, I will never flood the whole earth again. And the Bible says that he put the rainbow in the sky to say that he'd made this covenant with all of life. So this covenant wasn't just between humans and God. It was actually also with animals and plants. He said he would never flood the earth again. So you would think, well, this is good, you know. They now get to walk with God. Well, actually, what we find out is God set things up well again, and then people start building this Tower of Babel. So the Tower of Babel is basically represented of people wanting success, wanting to reach heaven, if you like, in their own strength, wanting to be a success, success in their own right. Now, God wasn't happy with this, and so he confused their language. He gave them many different languages, and um, spread them across the earth. Now, this was absolutely a calamity for my poor family who cannot speak languages very well at all. So now we have all these languages, um, and God starts to set up a covenant with Abraham. See, God was looking for people on earth who were willing to covenant with him. So basically, people make a mess, and then God reestablishes something. Now, When he does this with Abraham, he asks Abraham to get some animals and cut them in half, and he lays them out to two sides. What's amazing about this is this is a blood covenant, and people in ancient times would have walked through uh, these animals that had been cut in half, and it would mean that they're making a blood covenant, so if they went against their covenant, it would result in death. It says in the Bible that God put Abraham into a deep sleep, and then God, as a like a fiery torch, passed through the animals um, on behalf of them both. Now, this is amazing, because when he created this covenant with Abraham, he puts it all on himself, God does. The covenant depended on God. And I find that just really loving of God, that he would covenant with Abraham in this way that it all depended on God and not Abraham. And we know that he promised Abraham, you know, as many descendants as the stars in the sky and sand on the seashore. And he gave them new names. He gave Abram the name Abraham and Sarai the name Sarah. And basically the ah in it is God breathing his breath into them. So the ah symbolizes the breath of God in their name. As life goes on, Abraham's son Isaac comes into the world, and then Jacob, um, and the covenant is passed down through them. Now, in the Bible, it says that Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. Jacob and Esau were the sons of Isaac, twins. And again, there's something amazing in this language because hated feels like a strong word. But actually, hated in the Bible just means haven't covenanted with. 
So Jacob was the one he covenanted with. And when you see it with Rachel and Leah as well in the Bible, again, Rachel I have loved, Leah I have hated. It's not that God detested them. It's actually that he didn't covenant with them and that Jacob hadn't covenanted with Leah. So that's an interesting throwaway thing. But hated in the Bible doesn't necessarily mean what you think it does. Thank you, St. Melitus, who've been teaching me lots. <laughs> so then we see that God uh, ends up redeeming um, them through Joseph. So Joseph was the son of Jacob. And Joseph, many of you know the story, uh, he was um, put in a ditch by his brothers. And then, you know, all sorts of terrible things happened to him. But eventually, uh, he is restored into the house of Pharaoh. He's put in charge of a lot of things. And God starts to do an amazing work through Joseph in redeeming the Israelites. So, Joseph's descendants settle in Egypt because that's where the food is. And as they settle there, we find that um, they grow and multiply. And eventually, the Pharaoh is really unhappy about this because they're becoming quite a powerful nation. And so what they do is they subject them to slavery and so we see the Israelites, who are now masses of people, are now in bondage in Egypt. And so God sends Moses to redeem his people. Can you see the themes here? God just keeps passing on this theme of redemption through his people to redeem the Israelites. Things get a mess, and then he redeems them again. So he sends Moses, and um, he eventually tells them, after a series of plagues, uh, to put the blood of a lamb on the doorposts of their door um, so that their firstborn won't be killed. We find out that the Egyptians don't do that and Pharaoh's son is killed and the Israelites flee from Egypt. They're told to go. Um, as they do this, they pass through the Reed Sea, not the Red Sea. Uh, the Reed Sea was the place that would have been closest and they pass through the Reed Sea and then they are on a journey towards the promised land. Now, Moses, who followed God so well, just slipped up a bit. And at one point, God says to him, when all the Israelites are thirsty, he tells him to speak to the rock and command water to come out. And he doesn't do that. He hits the rock. And God is not happy with this. And so as a result, God says to him, you will not possess the promised land and so the baton gets passed on to Joshua. So Exodus, the book of Exodus finishes with the Israelites overlooking the promised land. And then we come into Joshua, with Joshua is all about taking the promised land. And there's a fear. Um, there's a fear in camp, but God's word to jo uh, Joshua time and time again is do not be afraid, be strong and courageous. So redemption is then passed on to Joshua. And we see that the, king, the, people, the Israelites then go through a series of judges, and then they ask for kings. They say, please, can we have kings appointed over us? Then we see Saul, whose time started well but ended up messy, and then David comes in, and um, eventually, after battle after battle after battle with Saul um, and fleeing Saul, he eventually is anointed king over the Israelites. Now... David's life is a bit of a mixture because actually, on one hand, he lives this amazing life. It says in the Bible that he's a man after God's own heart. That's what his name means. And so he's absolutely loves and devoted to God, but then he does this really dumb thing. He sees this beautiful woman, 
and decides to make love to her. Um, she becomes pregnant, but she's already married to someone who's already on the front line. So he goes and has this man killed. And as a result, the baby that Bathsheba is carrying dies. And then she becomes pregnant again with Solomon. So it's all a bit messy. And God was not happy with David when he did this. So then we get to Solomon, and this is where we're going to stop, guys, sorry. It's a bit of a marathon, isn't it, the whole of the Bible, and the story of redemption through it. But we're going to talk about Solomon for a bit, because this, to me, is a pinnacle in the Old Testament. Solomon's name means peace. And um, God says in 1 Chronicles 22, verses 7 to 10, David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. But this word of the Lord came to me. You shed much blood and fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon. And I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name. He will be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. So basically, we see that David, who had planned to build a temple for God, was told that he wasn't allowed to do it because in God's sight, he'd shed so much blood. And so what David does is he goes about gathering all the things that are needed for the construction of a temple, uh, but he passes it on to his son, Solomon. God is using people as a story of redemption over and over through the Bible. We're going to look at Solomon more closely now. So we're going to read 1 Kings 10 together. When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord, she came to test Solomon with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan, with caramels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the place he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers and burnt offerings he made in the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he's made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold, large quantities of spices and precious stones. Never again were so many spices brought in as those that the queen of Sheba gave to Solomon. Hiram's ships brought gold from Ophir, and from there they brought great cargoes of almugwood and precious stones. The king used almugwood to make supports for the temple and the lord for the royal palace, and to make harps and lyres for the musicians. So much almugwood has never been imported or seen since that day. 
King Solomon gave to the Queen of Sheba all she desired and asked for, besides what he had given her out of his royal bounty. Then she left and returned with her, to ret- with her retinue to her own country. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents, not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and the governors of the territories. King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold, 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He also made 300 small shields of hammered gold with three miners of gold in each shield. The king put them in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. Then the king made a great throne covered with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps and its backs had a rounded top. On both sides of the seats were armrests with a lion standing beside them. Twelve lions stood on the six steps, one at either end of the step. Nothing like this had ever been made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's goblets were gold, and all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's day. The king had fleet of trading ships at sea along with the ships of Hiram. Once every three years it returned carrying gold, silver and ivory and apes and baboons. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole, earth, the whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom of God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came bought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons, spices, horses and mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kew. The royal merchants purchased them from Kew at the current price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the Arameans. Well, so we can see that this is quite an amazing time to be in. So the Israelites who've gone through disaster after disaster, lots of like warring and fighting, they have 40 years under Solomon's reign of peace. Remember, Solomon's name means peace. And under his leadership and rule, they have this peace. Back in 1 Kings 3, um, God had asked Solomon, what would you like in your when, as you lead people, what would you like? And I will give you anything. And we know that Solomon had asked for wisdom. And God had said that because he'd asked for wisdom, he would also give him honor and wealth. But he also said this interesting thing to him. He said that if he was obedient, he would also give him long life, which I find really interesting because we see that, don't we, in the Ten Commandments as a promise to children. If you obey your parents, you will have long life. And here, God is the father of Solomon. There's almost this passing on of fatherhood because he says to David, I will be his father. And so if he is obedient, he will also get long life. I find it beautifully ironic that the thing that Solomon asks for is wisdom before, and it's a wise thing to ask for. Even before he's been given wisdom, he's being wise. And... Um, It just shows that when we respond to God well, when we respond to God's questions in life, he multiplies good things in our life. Now, there have been a lot of difficult things that we spoke about in David's life, and he didn't make great choices. But Solomon starts to redeem the plan that God had had. 
we see God's redemption through the life of Solomon and demonstrated in his walk with God. In verse 1, it says that when the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord, she came to test Solomon with hard questions. So out of the challenges that David went through and the falls, in walks Solomon and he starts to build on his father's ceiling. David had got everything ready for Solomon to thrive in terms of building the temple. And I wonder when you look at your own life and the battles that you are facing, are you thinking about the next generation that will come after you? Are you thinking about what they will get to build on, the legacy that you leave behind? Are you setting up the next generation to prosper in God? And I'm not talking about financially, but more, are you leaving a legacy in your life? Verse 1 and 2 tells us that she tested Solomon with riddles and hard questions. And we find out that she is overwhelmed when she hears the answers to his wealth uh, in terms of food and temple and people and gold. She says, praise be to your, the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. Now, I should add here that the Queen of Sheba isn't just impressed by God through Solomon. She actually sees what it is to do life with God. And she also starts to follow God too on the back of that. And we know because in Matthew 12... Verse 42, it says, The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. She came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. And it says the same in Luke eleven thirty-one. You see, you don't get to judge if you're not one of God's people. So this shows us the power of a life lived with God, and yet we have one even greater than Solomon. Holy Spirit gives wisdom to us. And the Queen of Sheba, she remarks about how happy Solomon's staff must be to hear his wisdom. I just want to add here that she is most impressed by his wisdom, not his wealth. It says in verse 10 that the Queen of Sheba gives Solomon a generous gift. She gives him 120 talents of gold. I had to look this up because talents isn't something that we particularly use these days, but that's 4,000 kilograms of gold. So David bought me a lovely gold necklace for Christmas, this one. It weighs four grams. So one million of these <laughs> is basically what the Queen of Sheba, this isn't a diss, I'm really happy with my gold necklace, but one million of these is about the same amount of gold that the Queen of Sheba uh, gave to him, which is... You know, if you want to talk in currency, it's about 2.7 million pounds. And it says that Solomon is incredibly generous in verse 13. It says, King Solomon gave the Queen of Sheba all she desired and asked for, besides what he'd already given her out his royal bounty. See, when God blesses us, we don't own it. We share it and steward it. And we don't hear about any of the Israelites being poor under Solomon's rulership. Our missional call as a church is that we are blessed to be a blessing, to give generously to the world around us. Solomon didn't worry that he was giving to a foreign queen. He blessed out of the abundance that God had given him. 
It also says that the weight of gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents, not including the revenues from merchants and traders from all the Arabian kings and the governors of the territories. So that is equivalent to around 23,000 kilograms in gold alone. That's 5,750,000 of my gold necklaces worth, um, or 15 million if you want to think about it in currency, a year. So that's how much purely in gold that Solomon had every year. So why did God bless Solomon so abundantly? It says in verse 23 and 24, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Solomon represented a king walking with God in covenant. This is an amazing choice of a man to birth redemption out of, because remember that he was the son of Bathsheba. Sometimes when we think about things like this, we think people have to come into purity in order to redeem something. But no, God took this mess and out of it used it to bring redemption to Israel. I find that really humbling. Solomon didn't write about his wealth. So it says, we know that he recorded um, the things that were happening. And it says, he didn't write about his wealth because actually in Proverbs, we see that he thinks wealth is folly. It wasn't his love in life. He wrote about wisdom and he wrote about love. So he has books of the Bible, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. These are all attributed to him in the Bible, and some of his writings are probably included in those books. In 1 Kings 4, it says he spoke 3,000 Proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He spoke about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. So his wisdom went before him. People heard of him. And he didn't keep this wisdom to himself. He wrote it down to pass it on. Again, he was blessed to be a blessing. He shared his wealth. He shared his wisdom. Solomon's life was redemption for Israel, redemption for David, though he didn't get to see all of this. So our redemption stories in God are not just our own. Our redemption stories will be impacting the world around us. They're our testimony, our good news. When I was putting this talk together, I was reminded of the words that God gave us for this year because actually we see a lot of this echoed in Solomon's life. So God said to us this year that he's doing doing a new thing and we see that through Solomon God does a new thing. Israel had never seen 40 years of peace and not warring before. This was a new thing. Israel had not built a temple before. This was a new thing. God has called us to be a dwelling place for him. And in the same way, Solomon had created a temple, a dwelling place for God. And God has told us that as we do that, we will flourish in the land. And we see that Solomon, in building the temple and setting things up in obedience to God, he flourishes in the land. And not only does he get the benefit, but everybody around him. And then Solomon's blessing affected everyone for their benefit. His wisdom and wealth 
You see, we are called to go out with joy. We are blessed to be a blessing. And everything good that God gives us is ours to then give away and steward. We know that redemption is part of God's story for us because God is with us. And I hope that as we've gone through that today, you can hear how God time and time again reached out to his people and redeemed them out of the mess. And he also does the same for us. The story of redemption hasn't gone away. And, you know, once we finish looking at the creation for redemption and restoration in the Old Testament, we're also going to look at it in the New Testament because this is still real for us now. So what we're going to do now as a response is I'd just like you to close your eyes and I'm going to pray. But also, if this is something that is a battle in your life at the moment, there is an area that you are looking for God's redemption. I'd really like to encourage you to come and get prayer. It doesn't have to be now. It can be at the end of the service. But I really believe that God still desires to bring redemption to us. So let's pray. God, I think about the phenomenal way that you bless Solomon, that what a life can look like lived out with you. And not just wealth, God, but that wisdom. That wisdom that turned everybody's eyes to you. God, help us to be a people that look to read our Bibles, to get wisdom, to get understanding, to cry out for it, God. God, any area that we're living in or walking in at the moment where we don't know what you're doing, will you bring us understanding? Will you give us your wisdom? God, we lift up any area that is broken and needs redemption as well. We invite you in, Holy Spirit, to bring redemption to us. God, I think about Solomon being a man of peace. Pray that we will be peace bringers to the earth. God, I pray that as a church, we will create a dwelling place for you. That in our hearts, we will create a dwelling place for you. Amen.